Thank you, praise team. What a good message that is to us, words to leave with us, that we will glory in our Redeemer and our Redeemer alone. I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 118. And um, you uh, can also find the scripture passages that I'll be using uh, as an insert in your bulletin as well. And uh, so you're welcome to follow along in that or in your Bibles. For those of you who are visiting and you're using the church Bibles, so I don't throw you off too off guard, I'm, I'm using a different version. We have the New International Version, which is an excellent, excellent version. And um, in the ministers, we each have our different uh, Bibles we like, and I use the English Standard uh, Version. In case you're wondering why I'm not using the same words that you're seeing there. Well, the pilgrims had ascended the Mount of Mount Zion. And if you can have this image of Jerusalem is, is up on a mountain, but not right at the peak. It's, it's just below the peak. So people would have climbed up the mountains, and now they're coming down into Jerusalem. They're streaming in there, probably in this case, to observe the Feast of Passover. And among them are Jesus and his disciples. There are hundreds, maybe even thousands coming in. The pilgrims, Jesus, his disciples, the people who are along the road, who are there welcoming them, people at the gate in the city, they are likely shouting to one another the words of Psalm 118. We know that just because one of the verses is quoted uh, when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. So what we're going to do on this Palm Sunday is take time to look at this psalm that was probably just shouted out at the first Palm Sunday and find out why it had become such a favorite of God's covenant people. Why did they love it so much? And then what is the rich meaning that it has for us today? So we're going to look at a portion of this psalm that that the people kind of speaks for the people this morning Then Thursday night, from Monday, Thursday, I'm going to take the rest of the psalm that speaks for the Messiah, particularly what Jesus would have dwelt among, would have dwelt upon. So with that in mind, look with me, beginning verses one through four. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Now, you've noticed two words have been repeated over and over, and you said them yourself over and over and over again in the responsive reading. And that's this term, steadfast love. It is very significant for the people of Israel. The Hebrew word is is hesed. And depending upon your Bible translation, you may have read different words. Some of you with your King James Bible, you would have read the word mercy. Some of you who were New American Standard Version, Bill Barton got you onto that version, and you would have read loving kindness. 
And if you had the NIV, the New International Version, you would have just seen the word love. And what my translation, the English Standard Version, and if any of you happen to have the Revised Standard Version, they're using this term steadfast love in an effort to, to capture the nuance of this particular love. It's a love that is based on God's covenant relationship with his people. God is love, yes. God, God loves the world. Jesus tells us that God the Father shows mercy even to the wicked. But then there is the covenant love. It's a love that is marked by faithfulness. It's a love that is founded on a binding relationship. It's a love that is secured by God whose word will not fail. Let me read to you a passage that gives you the the concept of this type of love. It's from Deuteronomy 7, in verses 6 through 9, and Moses is speaking to the people. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you. That is not the Hesed love yet. That the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. It is because the Lord loves you. That's not the word yet. And is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. That the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. What this passage is saying, what Moses is saying, is because God has chosen, out of his own purposes, to, to love Israel. He's made a covenant with them. And that is marked with a steadfast love, this this hesed. It's a love that they can count on. It's a love that is going to be faithful throughout all the generations, no matter what happens. It is a love that indeed endures forever. It is a love that is merciful. It's a love that is loving kindness. That's why these others have translated it with those terms. It is a love that will carry the hopes of the people of Israel over all the centuries. So again and again, as we go through the Old Testament, we we will read of the people thanking God for his steadfast love. There is today the King David. For example, he, he brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. So he composes a psalm of thanksgiving for the for the occasion. And he shouts out, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. When David's son Solomon builds the temple for the Lord, and the priests come in, they, they dedicate the temple, they give praise to God, God comes down in that mighty cloud over the temple, and then the musicians, the singers, all give praise to the Lord, and what do they sing? For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And they would sing that every day. 
throughout all the centuries, the, the praise would continue in the temple. And so the centuries do go by. That temple is destroyed. The people are sent into exile. They come back and they begin to rebuild the temple. And here's what happens when they do that, when they lay that foundation in Ezra 3.11. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. And then they add these two words, toward Israel. He's our God. And that love we will never lose. And so it was with this kind of praise that the people of Israel, they welcome the pilgrims every year as they're arriving for all the different feasts that they come to. And so picture the scene as the, the pilgrims, again, are approaching the gates of Jerusalem in verse 19. Probably they, they are speaking responsibly. And you have the pilgrims. They've come to the gates. And what do they say? Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. And the people at the gate respond, This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. Now you see the significance of that term righteousness. The gates of Jerusalem are the gates of righteousness because Jerusalem is the city of the Lord. It is the holy city. That is where the temple of God stands. And it's in the temple of God where the presence of the holy God is, is there. And so as far as such a purpose that the pilgrims have traveled from all throughout parts of the country to celebrate the saving works of the Lord in the history of Israel and to come and to worship God people in his temple. There was no other place that they were allowed to even to offer up sacrifices. Only here. And so you can feel the joy that they have. And if you can't feel the joy, you can read about it. In Psalm 122. Let me read from Psalm 122. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up. See, all the tribes have gathered. The tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. That's what you come to Jerusalem to do. So again, can you picture that celebration? There's the joy the the pilgrims have entered, the the joy of the city in, in welcoming them. It's, it's probably a mob scene, just, just fill great rejoicing. So, you know, like even when, when, when the children come in, and you kind of go, well, you know, there's a lot of hustle and bustle. Precisely. That's the whole idea. Everybody's just making lots of noise and, and rejoicing in the Lord. This is not a somber occasion. Even though they're entering holy, holy ground, they are aware that they may enter into this holy ground because of the salvation of the Lord. That's what they're celebrating. He has saved them throughout their history. He has saved them, each of the pilgrims, through their journeys. I'll tell you what hardships they had in coming. And now they're entering this city. So let's look at verse 21. I thank you. 
that you have answered me. They're speaking. Each pilgrim is speaking to God that you have answered me and have become my salvation. Now, it's the next verse that's just outright hard to explain. It's just an odd verse thrown in here. Verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, what what is that stone? And what has it become the cornerstone of? Now, some commentators, I think John Calvin does, he thinks the psalm is written by David. And David's referring to himself. He was the least of his brothers in an insignificant family. And now he's entering Jerusalem as Jerusalem's king. Well, maybe, could be. Others think the psalm is referring to Israel. And they're saying, look, you know, all the great empires of, of, of our time they have regarded Israel as just an insignificant nation. You know, they have their great empires and they're building these empires. And what, what are they going to do with Israel? And yet, Israel has proved to be the precious stone of God's kingdom. Well, perhaps. Tell you what, we're going to come back to this. Let's go on to 23 and 24. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. This salvation is the Lord's doing. It is he who has made the rejected stone the cornerstone. It's he who has become each pilgrim's salvation. It's a day of salvation. That is the day that the Lord has made. And so, what else do you do but rejoice and to be glad? And then verse 25 Oddly enough, they they seem to to switch gears. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. So they've been entering in. They're just giving thanks to God for his salvation. They're just rejoicing. And all of a sudden, they say, save us. Now, did some troubles just suddenly appear? Well, no. Actually, they are still in the midst of of giving praise to God, and they're praising him as their everlasting saving deliverer. Think about the relationship that Israel had with God. It was defined by God being their savior. You know, when God gives the Ten Commandments, he's going to give the Ten Commandments to to Moses and um, The words that are spoken before giving these commandments are these. This is what God says to the people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I'm your savior. I'm your deliverer. And so this is how the people look at their God. The Lord God, Yahweh, is, well, let me read some of their descriptions, their terms for God. He's the God of our salvation. He's the rock of my salvation. He's our refuge, our fortress, our hiding place, our strength, our shield, our stronghold arm. He is our Savior, our Deliverer. That's who our God is. That's why we worship and and praise Him. That's how Israel understands Him. Is He Creator? Well, yes. 
He is the Holy One, the great God, and, but all the more wondrous then, when you consider that he is the great God over all things, that he has taken this little rejected stone and made her the cornerstone for his kingdom, that he has saved us. That term, save us, it's word, it, that is the word, Hosanna. When the people are crowding out, Hosanna. That's what they're saying, save us. And it's but a means of them acknowledging their relationship to their God. They will forever remain dependent upon him for their salvation, for their success. You know, another way of looking at this is like fans who are shouting out to their team, you know, and they might say, win for us the victory. And it's just a way of them of saying, we believe in you. You are the ones who can win that victory. That's what Hosanna is saying. So even though it is is a call for save us, it's a word of great praise to their Savior. Now, the psalm of thanksgiving and of welcome continues. Look with me in verse 26. This is the phrase that we know so well. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Picture the procession. It's moving along. Pilgrims have have entered the city. They are proceeding to the temple, to the great courts of the temple. And so those who are already present are calling out, Blessed! Blessed is the pilgrim who comes. And they are saying, Blessed is that pilgrim on all those who come in the name of the Lord. And then in verse 27, they're getting near the temple now. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. The Lord is God. He is shining. He is showing his benevolence upon us, his light upon us. Now let's offer to him our sacrifice. Now, we don't actually know what sacrifice or, or that is what festival they may be celebrating at that time. They had a number of celebrations and, the, and you would offer up these sacrifices. But whatever it is, what you see here, again, is not a somber occasion. It's all celebration. It's all rejoicing in God as their deliverer. And so the psalm fittingly ends with these words, verses 28 and 29. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And this time I want you to note two terms here in these last two verses, to God. There's that word, God. It is the Hebrew term, Elohim. And that's kind of the generic term for God. It's like us when we say the word God. But note what they add here. He's my God. Not that they own him, but that he owns them. I belong to him. I give my allegiance to him. I give my God thanks. And then they use the second term. And this is the covenant name for God. My God is the Lord Yahweh. Or Jehovah. Whenever you see in your Bibles that L-Lord, L-O-R-D, in capital letters, 
It's that term, Yahweh, or again, Jehovah, however you want him to say this. It's the name that God gives to himself. It's the name by which he is known as the covenant God. And so give thanks. Give thanks for he is good to us. Yes, God is good. And, but it's not just that he's good. It's not just rejoicing in that. He's good to us. Not just that he is love, but he has a covenant love for us. So that's what it's meaning for the people on that day and day after day and century over century. To, to, to read, to study, but even more to, to proclaim this psalm to one another. Let's bring that psalm into our sanctuary on this Palm Sunday. It's our psalm now. And even as our own psalm, there's really little of anything that we would need to change. Because we too can sing out, can't we? Can we sing out, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. You know, whenever I read the psalms, and they're filled with praise and thanksgiving, particularly they mention the love of God, whenever I think about that, I'm always struck by how much more we know how much greater reason we have to give such praise. No, they did not know what we know. I mean, when the Hebrew people are praising God for being good and, and possessing love, I mean, they're, they're applying it personally. You know, they're thinking that God is, is good to me. He's shown steadfast love to me. And, and then but what are they thinking about when they shout such praise? Well, they're thinking of a great salvation. They're thinking of Egypt, the Exodus, being led out from slavery. And, they, and so they are always giving thanks to God for that great salvation. And then, you know, there is the, 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 the personal uh, praises and, and thanksgiving that they give for, for being good to them throughout the day or throughout the year, just like we would give. But... There was another promise and something greater that God has fulfilled that they're not even really thinking about. You know, God had promised Abram, Abraham to make descendants who are more numerous than the, the grains of sand. And uh, they look back at that and they're thinking, well, yeah, we've been a, well, not that large of a nation, but a pretty large nation. And when you add up to generations to generations, we're, we're thankful they're thankful that God proved to be their deliverer again and again. You know, he got them through the 40 years in the wilderness. Once he got them into the promised land, he gave them power to defeat the nations who were already settled there. And throughout their history, they were always being attacked by other nations. Time and time again, he's delivered them. He's protected them from the hostile nations. And so they, they, they shout out Hosanna. You know, he is our Savior. He shows us his goodness and steadfast love. And that's great. God is worthy of praise for those things. But the even greater story, again, is to go back to Abraham and what God and how God intended that his promise would be fulfilled. Listen to it. It's from Genesis 12, 2 and 3. I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And here it is. 
I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families of the earth shall be blessed, not just this one nation in this one part of the world. It's for all families. It's for all nations. It's for all people groups of the world. The children of Abraham will be those who are children by faith. And here we are. What do we, who are Abraham's children by faith, what do we have to celebrate for God's goodness and his steadfast love? Well, we have been saved from slavery as well. We were saved from the slavery to sin. And the great exodus is that work that was done upon the cross. We have been saved from the clutches of the evil one who desires our souls, our damnation. We've been delivered from the power of death itself so that everlasting life awaits us. That's what we have to celebrate. And consider our deliverer. He is the Word. The Word who was, who was God and who was with God. He is the Son of God who became flesh. This is, this is no Moses. This is not a mere man. This is the God-man, fully divine, fully human. This is the one who said of himself, before Abraham was, I am. Yahweh, that's what Yahweh means. I am who I am. That's why stones were picked up to try to, to, to throw at him for blasphemy. Consider his miracles. He healed the sick. He gave sight to the blind. He cleansed lepers. He drove out demons. He even raised the dead to life. He commanded storms to cease. He, he, walked, he walked on water. He multiplied fish and bread. That's our deliverer. Consider the means of our deliverance. How did our Savior win the great victory? He suffered for us. He was rejected. He was scourged. He was crucified. He fought our battle on the cross. He released us from sin by carrying our sin upon his shoulders and then receiving the divine punishment for those sins. He delivered us from death by yielding his body to death. That's what our Savior has done for us. And then consider the outcome. Our Deliverer, he rose from the dead. He ascended on high into, into the real heavenly temple. And even now, even now at this moment, he is interceding for us as our high priest. And he shall return again in full glory to consummate his kingdom. This is the stone that was rejected and has become the cornerstone for the kingdom of God. This is what makes sense of the psalm. It doesn't make sense until you get to Jesus Christ. He has become that cornerstone upon who our own salvation is, is built upon. Jesus believed it was about him. After his entry into Jerusalem, he told a parable 
about his rejection. And then he quoted this very verse, verse 22, applying it to himself. The disciples believed that he was this this cornerstone, this stone being rejected. Peter would, someday he would stand before the same religious leaders who had condemned his Lord, and he would boldly say to them, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. It's Jesus Christ who fulfills Psalm 118. And so with us, to truly understand it, that when we shout, when we see the people shouting out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, it's not just any pilgrim coming in. It's speaking of the Messiah who enters in the name of the Lord. It is the rejected Messiah who is the cornerstone. And so to him, it is so fitting, isn't it, to cry out, Hosanna, save us. Hosanna, you are our Savior. Because that's what he entered Jerusalem to do. To save his people from their sins. And all who receive him as such are his people. We are the objects of his goodness. We are the recipients of his steadfast love. How do we know that? How do we know that we are of God, that we've been called by him? Well, in 1 Corinthians 1, 22 and 24, it says this. Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. And this is the Apostle Paul speaking. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and, and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God. Christ is not our stumbling block. He is for us the power and the wisdom of of our salvation. Therefore, we know that we belong to him and are called by him. And so I would ask you today, what is Jesus Christ for you? Is he a stone to be rejected or is he the cornerstone upon which to be saved? Be careful of rejecting such a stone. When Jesus had spoken of himself as being that rejected stone, he added a warning. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. See, rejecting the stone is not merely a matter of missing out on the kingdom of God. It entails judgment, our judgment. But why reject Jesus? Why not welcome him as the one who has come to you in the name of the Lord? He came to save. He came to to shine his, his light upon us, and he came that we might be saved and to celebrate it, to celebrate our salvation. And so to, to those who have made Christ the cornerstone, you know, we had noted earlier that the people of Israel, when they, when they looked upon the God, the great God of the world, they looked upon him as, as their own God. And they worshipped him with, with reverence for holiness and majesty. They also worshipped him with joy. 
Not simply because, you know, he, oh, he's, he's good. God is, God is uh, always a good and, and righteous God. Because he was good to them. He was love. Yeah, God, that is a character trait of God. But more to the point, he has shown steadfast love to them. He showed goodness and love by his acts of deliverance. That's how he showed this. Whether it's a deliverance from the exodus, whether their own little personal scrapes that they would get themselves in, and it's the same with us. By this, we know that God has loved us. That he has sent his son and made him to, for, as an atonement for our sins. God is worthy to be worshipped by us because God is God. He's the creator. The reason, truly, we come here, and the reason we can come here, because he's our savior, our deliverer. And there's that great act of salvation on the cross, which all of itself is worthy of all praise and thanksgiving, and we should be praising him for his steadfast love every day, if not for that one reason alone. But then God pours out more blessings. They're all the riches that are found in Christ. We've been adopted as God's children. We who once were enemies. Our salvation is made secure by the Holy Spirit. We can't lose it. We are being sanctified. The messed up people that we are, the Spirit is sanctifying us. We are being prepared for glory. It's going to come. And then there are the daily deliverance from troubles of this life in this world so that we can say, can't we, that our God is faithful to us. All the messes we've gotten ourselves in, God has delivered us again and again. Our saving God is providing for us and guiding us. He's protecting us. and He's giving us delights. This is our God. This is what we receive from because of and through the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, should we not on this day all the more, even more so than the people of Israel, proclaim, blessed, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Do we not have a much greater cause to shout out to our God, to our Lord Jesus Christ, Hosanna, our God of salvation, He is the one who has come to us. We give you praise, our great God. You who have created us, you who have made all things, you keeping track of all things taking place in this, not only this world, but all the universe and beyond it. But you are our Savior. Though we rebelled against you, you placed your love upon us and you have brought us to be your covenant people, how wondrous this love is. Surely you are good, and you are good to us, surely. You are a God of steadfast love to us. We praise you and worship you. In Christ's name, our Lord and Savior. Amen.